0: at the first 10 verses this morning. James chapter 4. How's everybody's week? You guys doing good? Oh, man. I'm going to uh, grab a tissue here. So let's take... 30 seconds and maybe a minute, and greet somebody around you. So, everybody stand up, find somebody around you, say hello to them. Greet. It's been a strange weekend uh, at Rocky Mountain Calvary a little bit. So last night at our Saturday night service, a guy comes in the back door. He was really upset and had some choice words to say. So the security ushered him out, and we got a great security team here, and they were literally right on it. And uh, so he had a little ride down to the police station uh, last night. Then this morning, for some reason, my ignition decided, hey, it's not going to work. And so that was it's like, okay. And then in between services, the alarm goes off. Uh, and then I get a bloody nose for the 11 o'clock service. So God must have good things in store for us. So let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your goodness. And as we get into your word, uh, we just ask that you would speak. And Lord, we do know that there is a, a real opposition when it comes to pressing into you. And we know the importance of this section of Scripture. So we do pray, Father, that you would just bless, that you would remove distractions, God, that you would give my my voice strength, Lord, and we just want to know more of you. So we commit this service to you in Jesus' name, amen. What comes to your mind when you think of the greatest battles in history? Maybe it's Waterloo, maybe there's things from World War II, D-Day is possibly something that comes to mind when the atomic bombs were dropped upon Japan. Maybe your mind goes to the Civil War or the American Revolution, but I want to suggest to you that the greatest war that we face is actually the war that's within us because it's what's within us that creates these conflicts. And that's what James addresses in this section of Scripture. And if you've been studying with us through the book of James, you know it's pretty heavy-hitting. Hasn't it been pretty heavy-hitting? It's direct. God speaks very pointedly through the book of James And this morning does not disappoint. So if you're taking notes, here's the three points we're going to be looking at as we go through these 10 verses. The first is the war within. The war within. And then the war with God. And then finally, the pathway to peace. So the war within, the war with God, and the pathway to peace. So let's jump right in into verse 1 of chapter 4. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Have you ever wondered that? Why can't just everybody get along? Why is there fights in the home? Why is there fights in our country? Why is our country so divided? Why at times is there fights among God's people? And that's what James is addressing here. He says, "Why are there wars and fights among you?" He's writing to churches. We know that from verse 1 of this book. So where is the source of those fights? Where's the f- source of those battles? And here's the answer. Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? The reason that we have wars and fights is because the desire for pleasure And it's a rhetorical question. Even though it's a question, James is making a statement. He's saying, this is the reason that there's war and there's fighting. So maybe it's in your marriage. Maybe it's with your kids. Maybe it's in the workplace, in the church of God. Every place that there's war and there's fighting, it all comes down to this desire for pleasure. And the word desire in the Greek, it's hedon, H-E-D-O-N-E, hedon, which we get our English word hedonism. And hedonism is this idea or this philosophy that the greatest goal in life is to have pleasure. And there's people that live their lives that way. I'm going to gratify myself, and the more pleasure that I can get, the more that I've succeeded in life. And sometimes you go to someone's funeral that has lived this way, and their group of friends get up, and what do they boast about? Well, they were a great person because they really knew how to party. They really knew how to get drunk. They really knew how to sleep around. And you're like, wow, is that really what life is being defined at? And so this is what James is addressing. But we also have to define this because is all pleasure bad? No, not at all. Because God is our Father and he wants things to be enjoyed. More than anybody else As the people of God. We should be able to sit down and enjoy a bacon cheeseburger under the Lord, right? Or if salad's your thing, enjoy that salad unto the Lord. God gives us commands and he gives us his ways. And inside of his ways and inside of his commands, we're to enjoy the pleasure that he gives. But James is speaking to when we seek after pleasure outside of God's ways and outside of God's commands. And you can see this happening so many times. It's the clash of wills. Somebody says, I want this. And then they will do sinful actions to achieve it. And that's where we cross the line. That's when we sin in our desire for pleasure and those sinful passions. It happens all the time in families, it happens all the time in our societies. More than any time possibly in human history, we could be a hedonistic society. If you look at what is the marching orders of our country, pleasure comes first the pleasure-driven technologies. The list goes on and on and on. So for us to get out of these wars and fightings, whether it's in our homes or our churches, in our relationships, we have to deal with this war that's coming inside of us. And that's the second half of verse one here. It says, war in your members. And this is our first point. It's the war within. This is believers. We all have the spirit of God living inside of us. But we also still wrestle with our flesh, our sinful nature. And Paul wrote about this in Romans 7. He's being open and honest that he says, the things that I want to do, I don't do. You ever been there? It's like, I really do want to read the word and walk in obedience. I want to do these things, and I don't do them. And then there's things that I don't want to do, but I do them. And in Romans 7, there's a lot of doo-doo. It's just back and forth, going going forth in there. Paul responds and says, Who can deliver me from this wretched man, this bondage of of sin? Paul experienced that war. And in some ways, that's encouraging. If Paul experienced it, we're going to experience it as well. Peter was supposed to be praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, wasn't he? And Jesus said to him, that his spirit was willing, but his flesh was weak. So there's this war and this battle that's happening. I think we can all relate to it. We may even be experiencing it this morning, but that's the source of conflict, is this desire for for passions. How do you respond when you don't get what you want? So verse two says, you lust and you do not have, you murder and covet and cannot obtain, you fight and war Yet you do not have because you do not ask. Maybe underline those verbs. Lust, murder, covet, fight, war. This is the intense, sinful action. This is the degree that we go to to fulfill those desires. Going outside of God's plans and outside of God's ways to try to accomplish fulfillment. There's some commentators That dispute the fact, was there really murder inside of these churches? Was there people that had gone so far in their desire for their passions that they've actually killed somebody? And I think that there was because of the example of King David. David was a man of God. In fact, he was the leader of the people of God. But yet in his desire for pleasure, what did he do? He committed adultery. He went outside of God's ways and outside of God's commands Then to cover up his tracks, he had Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, killed. If David's capable, man, we're capable. So very real, there's murder that's happening inside of the churches of God in this pursuit of their lusts, in this pursuit of their desires. And maybe we don't commit murder in the physical act, but murder is in our hearts. This is a lot of work. Lust, murder, covet, fight, war. Like you got to go to the chiropractor after endeavoring in this, right? But what's the outcome of the work? You do not have, you cannot obtain. So when we go down this road of these sinful passions, it's gonna leave us empty every single time. Our selfish passions will never satisfy us. The poster boy for this we find is Solomon. Solomon went for everything under the sun, the chasing of the wind outside of his relationship with God. And what did he say? Vanity, vanity. It's emptiness. You can never grasp the wind. And the same will be true for us. And this morning, church, brothers and sisters in Christ, we can take God's word and learn from it and go, oh, this is so true. And it can save us a lifetime of pain, can't it? All these things that I think I need, that I think I want, that I'm going after the wrong way, it's always going to leave me empty. And we can go to the Lord and we can look to the Lord for him to be the one that satisfies us. It's something in us. It's this human nature that can easily consume us. There's an experiment that's been done with butterflies. And you've got these male butterflies And if you take and you draw a female butterfly, but you draw the female butterfly larger and more colorful, the male butterfly will go for the cardboard cutout every single time, leaving the physical female butterfly alone. And in a lot of ways, we live in that cardboard cutout society, don't we? Where something that's fake, that's counterfeit, is being put up for us, saying that's what you really want and that's what you really need. And we lose out in the satisfaction that the Lord is trying to give for us. Meditate upon it for just a moment. You do not have. You cannot obtain. And then it goes on and says, because you don't ask. The place for satisfaction and fulfillment is found in a relationship with God. We're bonded to trash when we could be bonded to glory. We could stop pursuing these things and these desires out of our pleasures and look to God and say God would you fulfill me. When a person is in that place where they're looking for fulfillment outside of Christ, they normally don't stop and go, "Oh, I'm barking up the wrong tree. I'm drinking out of the wrong well. I need to turn to my relationship with the Lord." And if they do ask, a lot of times they ask amiss in verse 3. You ask and you do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. God just simply becomes a means of trying to get the sinful desires and and the pleasures. Instead of praying for God's will and for his kingdom to come, it's a prayer of, Lord, allow my desires to be fulfilled. It may be something like this. God, would you bless the housing market in Colorado Springs? because you're fortunate enough to buy a house, and everything that you have is poured into that house. And so, Lord, would you just bless the housing market of Colorado Springs? Maybe you bought some stocks, and Lord, would you just be gracious to these stocks, and would you bless these companies? But there's nothing in those prayers of, Lord, would you bless so that I could be a blessing? Would you bless so that I could give? Would you bless so that I could further your work. It's simply self-focused on our own financial goals, and there are prayers that God's going to flat out say no to. There's sometimes as a parent where your kid goes, I want this whole bag of candy. You're like, sorry Charlie, you're not getting the whole bag of candy. You're going to make yourself sick. Maybe you're the parent of a teenager, and they're like, hey, I think I need to come home at two in the morning. You're like, no, that's not a good idea. This is the time that you're going to come home this evening. And God's the same way. When we come to him and it's just a prayer that's looking for our desires, he'll say no. Say no, you're you're just trying to fulfill your, your passions. Maybe you're in a dating relationship. You're like, God, please, please make this relationship work out. This is Mr. Right. I know it. This is Mrs. Wright. I know it. We've got to just spend the rest of our lives together. You may be dating the Antichrist and you don't know it. <laughs> that gal that you think is so wonderful, the guy that you think is Mr. Wright, he might have the mark of the beast tattooed on his back, you know, 666. Everybody can play nice when you're dating. It's so easy to behave at dinner in a movie. If you're not getting along over dinner in a movie, move on. You know what I'm saying? Because life gets a lot more real than a dinner and a movie. And it may be wise for you to pray in this fashion. God, I really desire for this relationship to work out. But I know that you know best. You see the beginning and the end. We can't hide from you, so we want your will and your kingdom to come. And this is how Jesus taught us to pray. He said, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. We're saying, not my will, but your will be done. God, I want you to receive glory. Jesus taught us to pray in his name several times. He says, if we pray in the name of Jesus, we can be confident that he hears us and we're going to receive what we've asked. So what does it mean to pray in the name of Jesus? It's not attaching his character and nature to our sinful pleasures. It's praying according to his will. We can trust that God's going to answer a prayer like, God, would you make me more of a person of love for your glory? See, that lines up with his character. It lines up with his nature. So they weren't looking in the wrong place, but they're also asking the wrong way for the wrong thing. So verse four is now the war with God. This is point number two. It's really the core of the issue. Adulterers and adulteresses Do you not know that your friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world and makes himself an enemy of God. Those are strong words, aren't they? Why does God call his church adulterers and adulteresses? Because their desire for their passions has become more important than their desire for God. Their worship of themselves has become more important than their worship of God. And whenever we get into idolatry, God views it that we're cheating on him. It's spiritual adultery. He means what he says here. You're an adulterer. You're an adulteress. And then he also explains that if you're a friend of the world, then you're the enemy of God you're at enmity with God. This word enmity, it means the state or feeling of being actively opposed or hostile to someone or something. Note that, actively opposed to someone or something. God is saying that we're at enmity with him. To put this into modern day vernacular, it's a terrorist. A terrorist is opposed to. We understand that. We live that. We know what what that feels like and looks like. And what God is saying is if you're a friend to the world, you're a terrorist to me. You're hostile towards me. You can't have it both ways. You can't buddy up with the world, which is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, and then try to buddy up with God. You know, we can't live according to the world all week and then come into church on Sunday morning and expect amazing friendship with God. Isn't it mind-blowing that there's even the potential for us to be God's friend? There's a lot of people that we're never going to be their friend. Where they are in life and we are in life, it's just not going to happen. But yet God, the creator of all things, we can be the friend of God. Abraham was called the friend of God. He was God's friend. And if we want that kind of fellowship and intimacy with God— Then we've got to walk in his ways and we can't walk in the fellowship with the world. This is the real war. The real war is with God. Yes, it's very real inside of me, but if I'm in this mindset, I've got a war with God. We go on into verse 5. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? So God's spirit who lives in the believer, it's very clear James is writing to believers. He's saying the spirit of God is in you. That can only happen if you're a believer and child of God. It yearns within you with jealousy. Now, please don't misunderstand this. Oprah Winfrey, you know, the the Oprah show, she radically misunderstood this. And out of her own mouth, in 2010, she describes a point in her life where she really left Christian theology because it was too narrow for her. Because she was at a service where the pastor was talking about how God is jealous for us. And this is how she took it. She understood it this way that God is all-powerful. He's all-knowing. He's all-loving. But yet there's something in us that he's envious of. There's something of us that he's, he's jealous for. And I've got to tell you, there's nothing in Oprah that makes God jealous. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> He's not looking down at Oprah and going, oh, I love your hair, I gotta have it, you know? If you think in some way that this means that God's looking down at us this morning and saying, oh yeah, I really want what you've got, no. It's this way in context. It's the understanding of a marriage. If a spouse is committing adultery, it's appropriate for the spouse who's being cheated on to say, no, I'm not gonna share you. I'm jealous for your love, your heart, your affection, your devotion, and not, God's not jealous for us in the sense that Oprah believed, but God is jealous in the sense that he longs for our worship. He's not going to put up for idolatry. He's not going to allow these sinful desires and these sinful passions to be greater than him. And that's what he's calling us to, and it's God's love that he pursues us in this way, that he would even be jealous for us in this way. Does that make sense? All right, let's go on into verse six, and it brings us to our last point that we'll look at for the next four verses. It's the pathway to peace. And this morning, if you look at your life and you go, you know, there's just so much conflict. I can be such a mean person when I don't get my way. When I don't get what I want, I'm really shocked in the way that I'll treat the people that I love the most. And if I'm honest, there's this atmosphere of conflict around my most closest relationships or You walk in today and you just feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit and you know ultimately as a child of God, you're at war with God. Well, there's good news. This pathway to peace that God gives to us, he says, but he gives more grace. This is not what I would expect at this place in the text. With this group of believers that are struggling to this extent that God would say he gives more grace. If we were the authors of the Bible, which we're very thankful that we're not, this is probably where we would get out our best lecture and really lay it on them and say, oh, you know, these are all the things that you need to do right. But God says he gives more grace. And what is grace? It's kindness. It's, it's favor. It's God's forgiveness. God in his unconditional love continues to pursue us in our sinful state. doesn't stop loving us in our sinful state. And it expresses in his grace, this is how his grace is received in our lives. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So don't misunderstand God's grace. It's not that God's grace is not gonna stand up against sin. and his love for us, he's going to oppose the proud. What does it mean to be proud in James 4? The most prideful thing that we can do is say, God, my pleasure is more important than your will and your way. That's pride. It's self-dependent. It's self-reliant. I don't need the Lord. And God says, I'm going to oppose the proud. Now, to illustrate this this morning, we're going to have a little bit of fun. Let me ask you a couple questions, okay? Is that all right? Well, if it's not, I got the mic. I'm going to ask you a couple questions anyway. <laughs> How many of you just don't like football? You kind of resent this time of year? You can go raise your hand. How many of you like it? It's all right. Jesus loves you, too. It's okay. All right. I just want you to know you're welcome here, and this, too, can be your church home. Now, how many would you just—you don't have to deny it. It's okay. How many of you say, I I like football. I love football. I'm a football fan. All right. Well, you, you are in the majority, if you didn't notice. And I heard there's a big game tonight, right? Looking forward to watching it. Kansas City, Broncos. Hopefully, we're all rooting for the Broncos. All right. So here's the illustration, and it's for football fans. And if you're not a football fan, there's a spiritual lesson in it too. Let's say by just some crazy freak of nature, the Broncos call me this afternoon, and they're saying, Eric, we need you to suit up for the game against Kansas City. (laughs) Why is that so funny? And they need an offensive lineman. Now, offensive linemen, they are huge. They're just Goliaths of men. I think offensive linemen are probably four of me if they're standing up here. So here I am playing tonight for the Broncos, offensive line, and I'm going to line up against a defensive lineman and have a guy that's opposed to me, right? Now, that's not something that I would ever want to do. But yet, would I want God opposing me? And that gives us a great understanding of what it would look like for God to oppose us. For him to take the other side and say, Eric, I'm not going to let you continue in this. This pride's destroying you. It's destroying the people around you. It's hurting your relationship with me, so I'm going to oppose you. Not the place we want to be. But who does God give grace to? Look in your Bibles. It says here he gives grace to the humble. And this is quoting from the Old Testament. It's a theme that runs through the Bible. That God pours out his forgiveness, his grace, upon those that have a humble heart. So what does it mean to be humble? It means to be downhearted, lowly, poor, in spirit. It's to acknowledge those things in the first half of our text this morning. Oh, Lord, my my evil desires, my passions, have become way too important to me. I'm a monster when I don't get my way. I have become an adulterer and adulteress and our heart just begins to break before the Lord and we humble ourselves before the Lord. We acknowledge that we're a mess. We acknowledge that we don't have our act together. We come to God in repentance and guess what? He pours out his grace. God's longing to hear prayers like, ah, I'm sure not... That great at being a dad. God, would you help me? Would you help me figure this out? I'm really struggling with this. I'm not proud of it. Would you forgive me? God, would, would you help me out? I need your wisdom. See, all that's that expression of humility. It's that humble heart. It's realizing that our resources are depleted. We're bankrupt. We're poor in spirit before the Lord. The rest of these verses, seven, eight, nine, ten really show us what humility is like. Humility is fleshed out. Therefore, submit to God. In light of the fact that God's gracious and he gives grace to the humble, then submit to him. Humility is going to let God be master in our lives. Say, I'm tired of trying to be the master of my own destiny. I'm willing to yield to the Lord. My desire, my passion saying, you need this right now, but I know what God's, word says, what his commands are, what his ways are, so I'm going to yield to the Lord. And that's humility when we yield to God, when we submit to God. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. This is an interesting place for this to be, but it's absolutely perfect in God's wisdom as he authors the scripture, because Satan wants us to walk in worldly wisdom that we learned about last week. Satan wants us to allow our passions, our desire for things outside of God's word to rule us, but that's not what God wants. And in a pathway to peace, we're going to have to resist the enemy. So how do we do that? How do we practically resist the enemy? We see Jesus' example. When he was tempted by Satan, what did he do? He quoted scripture. Sometimes God's word being this close is not close enough, It's gotta be hidden in my heart in those moments of temptation and the moments of those spiritual battles to quote God's word and to quote it out loud. The word of God is powerful. You try it. In the midst of those temptations, begin to say God's word and to say it out loud. Say the written word, but run to the incarnate word. Who's the incarnate word? It's Jesus, who knows what it's like to be tempted. Say, Jesus, would you help me? Would you give me the grace and strength in this moment? walk in, live in, use the armor of God that's given to us in Ephesians chapter 6. As we look at God's armor that he provides, there's nothing for our backside because we're not to run from the attack of Satan. We're to resist Satan. And as we stand in Christ and stand in his word and stand in prayer, we're to flee temptation, run away from temptation Now, we're to stand and hold our ground. When you know that there's a spiritual battle that's taking place, you hold your ground in Christ. And guess what? The promise is he will flee from you. The victory's been won. When Christ died and rose again, Satan was defeated. Amen? So we fight from victory. We hold our ground, and he will flee from you. Verse 8, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. This is the core of the, the text. This is what's needed. It's to draw near to God. This is a famous verse. It's a verse that you find in cards, posted on Facebook and different places, verses that we write back and forth to each other. But in context, this is a struggling believer who's an adulterer or an adulteress. If someone's an adulterer or An adulteress, and they come back to their spouse, how many would say, Oh, yeah, draw near to me? But this is the grace of God. This is a grace of God expressed. Where God's saying, Oh, you're struggling right now, you draw near to me, and I will draw near to you. Maybe you had a terrible week spiritually, a terrible morning or night spiritually, you're in a bad place, and the enemy's beating up on you, saying, You can't go to church. Because you blew it this week. You can't get up and teach a Bible study. You blew it this week. You can't go tell your friend about Jesus because you blew it this week. And this is what God's word's saying. Saying you're a mess. Spiritually, you draw near to me. And I will draw near to you. Our father is the father who welcomes home the prodigal. Has there ever been a time where you drew near to, to God and God said, oh, no, you're nasty. Get away from me. He allows us to draw near to him, and he will draw near to us. How do you do that? By prayer, talking to him, being in his word, in worship, crying out to him in worship. He comes close to us. Continuing in verse 8 cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double minded. This is in the exact opposite logical order. You'd think that this would come first, that God would say, cleanse your hands, purify your hearts, make up your mind, don't be double-minded. Once you've done all that, you can come near to me. It's like a dog playing in a cesspool pool of manure and saying, okay, come here, Fido. Like, no, you go take a bath before you get anywhere close to me, right? God's saying, you can come to me just as you are, because we can't cleanse ourselves, It's only God that can cleanse us. It's only through drawing near to him that purity will come in our lives. We can come to him just as we are, but then he loves us too much to leave us in that place. What do we confess to him? What do we bring to him? We cleanse our hands. What's in your hands? Are there anything in your hands that don't glorify God? And if that's the case, then repent and allow God to cleanse your hands. How about your heart? We talked about David, and to be fair to David, as he was an adulterer and a murderer, he was also a man of humbleness and knew what it meant to repent, didn't he? And pour out his heart before God, and the cleansing came. And as we confess our sin as believers, as child of God, then God's faithful to forgive us of our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We're not confessing for salvation. We're confessing for right relationship with God. So we have hands, we have hearts, and now we have our mind. All three are included. That pretty much sums it all up. What does it mean to be double-minded? It's to have a mind for the world, but have a mind for Christ. To have a mind for my desires, but have a mind for Christ. And here it's saying, make up your mind. Set your mind on Christ. And verse 9 says, Lament, mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be churned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Is that in your guys' Bible or is in that just in mine? Is that really there? Verse 9, is it they want to check? Do I have the Book of Mormon up here this morning? Or? It's in our Bibles, isn't it? It's not what we would expect, but God is saying take your sins seriously. Lament, mourn, and weep. It's not boys will be boys, girls will be girls. I'm better than I used to be. I haven't done this for a long time. I'm better than the people down the road or this family member. It's getting into God's presence. We're drawing near to him. He's drawing near to us and we mourn over our sin. A physical response of weeping before God. There's a time not to laugh. There's a time to not be joyful, and it's in doing business with our sin before God. 2 Corinthians talks about this. It says, For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. Many people are sorry about their sin and their behavior and their choices, but there's no change. It's just, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And that's the sorrow that leads to death. That's exactly where Satan would want us to be. But godly sorrow leads to repentance. It's not that we stay in this place of lamenting, weeping, and mourning. We're affected by our sin and the seriousness of it, and then we turn from our sin in repentance and change direction and receive God's grace and his forgiveness and get up and continue to walk with the Lord. Is God hitting you with something this morning? As he's speaking to you, saying, Hey, don't push this off to the side. Don't make light of this. Come to the Lord. Draw near to the Lord. Allow him to bring that cleansing in our lives. In verse 10, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. In his sight, we humble ourselves. It's what we've just read in these verses to submit to God, to resist the enemy, to cleanse our hands, our hearts and our minds. And when we do that before the Lord and we humble ourselves before God, then he'll lift us up. Isn't this encouraging? He doesn't lift up the perfect person. These churches that are struggling with murder and lust and covetousness that are adulterers to God, that are the enemy of God, God's saying, hey, if you get right with me and you humble yourself before me, I'm gonna lift you up. That's grace, isn't it? God doesn't lift up perfect people because there's no perfect people. He lifts up broken people. Amen? Amen? As we turn to Him and we cry out to Him and we humble ourselves before Him. Are you tired of pride? There's nothing worse than waking up in the morning, going to bed at night, and there's that sick feeling in our hearts that God's opposed. He's standing on the other side of the line because of my pride and my choices. But there's also nothing that could come close to being right with God. Being in that place of having gone through the heart work in confessing sin and yielding to God and walking with him and experiencing his grace and his forgiveness. This may surprise you, but I don't know you. And you don't know me. You're saying, what? You're my pastor. I don't know you. You don't know my thoughts. You don't see my heart. God sees my heart. I don't know your thoughts. And I don't know your heart. But God does. And where he's putting that conviction in our hearts and putting that conviction in our lives to open up our hearts and our thoughts and our life before him and be broken in his presence and allowing him to minister to our hearts. No better way to do this than with communion. We're going to take a few minutes here to enter into God's presence and remember what Christ has done for us. And with communion, we remember Christ's sacrifice, his broken body, his shed blood, but we also confess our sin to the Lord. You know what? This morning, we came to do more than listen to good worship music. And I really appreciate and enjoy good worship music. And we did more than to come and listen to Bible teaching. We came to draw near to God. Agreed? We came to sing to God. We came to draw near to God. So let's do that as we take communion together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this section of scripture that you would give more grace.